You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Uh, ten years ago, I was asked to leave my job and come on full-time staff at the church as full-time children's minister. Uh, the week between when I left that job and came on full-time here, the Lord really started doing some things in my life that I thought, man, what a strange coincidence. Well, as it turns out, it wasn't really uh, a bunch of coincidences after all. God began to use people in my life to awaken my heart to a heart that just really loves God. Um, and I was around such an awesome group of people here. One of the best things about being here is the specific people that I was surrounded with uh, at first. Um, it was uh, really unbelievable how much you can learn in such a short amount of time when you're sharing an office with people who have been walking with the Lord and reading their Bible every day for their entire life. It's what an awesome blessing that was for me. Uh, they were definitely patient uh, with me as I would confidently stroll into the office and have all the answers that all the theologians have been baffled about for uh, centuries, uh, only to learn that maybe I didn't have it all figured out after all. Um, and they were definitely encouraging when um, I was smacked around with uh, some theolog- tough theological issues and, and really didn't understand what I was reading. So I'm very grateful for my time here. Uh, today is, as Pastor Phil said, my last uh, sermon as a staffer here. <laughs> oh, I love you guys. At least for the foreseeable future anyway. So here's what I would like to do. I'm not going to do the, the traditional Calvary Chapel sermon uh, we like to do line by line, verse by verse. That's not what I'm going to do here. Uh, with it being my last time to share, I just want to share from my heart. Um, I've been very blessed here. I've learned a lot. And so all I want to do is I just want to talk about God. I just want to share some things that I've learned about God, some things about him that have been very important to my life. And, um, and what, uh, uh, what is any sermon without three points? So here they are. I want to talk about God, just who he is, uh, why I love him. And the second thing I want to talk about is his glory. I want to talk about what is God's glory and why is it important. Uh, And then the last point is practical, practical reasons why understanding who God is and his glory, what his glory is, practical reasons, practical ways in your life, how that applies and is really transforming. So let's start with God. When God appeared to Moses uh, as a burning bush, now I, I applaud Moses because he, you know, he held in there like a trooper. I think a lot of us would have uh, cried and run away, but he held in there. So, um, you know, God told Moses, Moses, my people, the Israelites, are slaves in Egypt right now. That's where Moses came from. And he said, Moses, I'm going to use you. You're going to go and you're going to get my people out of Egypt. And you're going to take them to a land that is wonderful. And you're going to be my spokesman. Well, Moses was a little concerned. He didn't really have the confidence that he'd be able to do it at first. But he had one really important question for God. Everybody turn to Exodus chapter 3, please. You had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the land. And then Jacob had a son named Joseph. His brother sold him as a slave to Egypt. God wonderfully actually used that to save the lives of all of their families by bringing them out of a famine into Egypt so that they could survive. Hundreds of years later, the entire family have become slaves. And so that's where they're at right now in this story. 
Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 13. Here is the question Moses had for God. But Moses replied, When I go to the Israelites and I say to them, The God of your ancestors sent me to you, they will ask me, What is his name? So what can I tell them? And God said, I am who I am. You must tell them that the one who is called I am has sent me to you. Tell the Israelites that I, the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent you to them. This is my name forever, and this is what future generations are going to call me. So the answer that God gave Moses is the most fundamental and basic idea of who God is. Not only is it fundamental and basic, but it's actually the highest and most ultimate truth of who God is. Everything that we know about God trickles down from this truth about God, that he is I am. And this statement, I think, I think God designed it beautifully to just make people think. I've never met anyone who hears God described as I am, hear that and say, oh, that's neat, and just go on, go on about their business. It doesn't happen. It certainly didn't happen for me. The chuckles that I hear make me think it didn't happen for you. What it does is it forces you to think. It makes you stop and wonder, what in the world is meant by the great I am? You could really think about it for the rest of your life and not even scratch the surface of how that applies to our lives and why that's important for him to be called I am. But I'm going to try. I have five, five things for what it means for God to be called the great I am. Five things. If you're a writer, a note taker, Go for it. What it means for God to be, I am. The first of five. What it means for God to be called, I am, is that he is the absolute reality of the universe. God is the absolute reality of the universe. God never had a beginning He doesn't have an end. He just simply is and has always been. I am. God was not born. He was not created. There's nothing outlives God. There's nothing outranks God. There was no universe before him. There was no outer space. There has always just simply been God. Revelation 22 verse 13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God is the ultimate reality of the universe. Number two, for God to be called the I Am, what it means is that God is the standard for truth, goodness, and beauty. God is the standard for truth, goodness, and beauty. God does not learn how to be good. He does not learn how to be good. He doesn't read from a law book to understand justice. Truth is truth because God says it, and that's it. Goodness is good because he does it, and beauty is beauty because of the standard that God has set for himself for being beautiful. Music and art and poetry are just faint echoes 
of God's beauty. It's not that God can be truth. It's not that God can be beautiful. Everything he does is true and beautiful. He is the standard. Psalm 50 says, The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfect perfection of beauty, God shines forth. He is the standard. Number three. Everything that is not God depends on God. Everything that is not God depends on God. Everything is secondary to him. The universe came into being by God. It continues being because of God's decision to keep it that way. The moment he decides for something to no longer exist, it's gone without a trace. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Wow. So everything that is not God depends on God just to exist. Number four. Everything compared to God is nothing. Everything compared to God is nothing. The sum of everything that every human in history, all combined, has ever accomplished is like a dust mote floating in a ray of light compared to God. Isaiah 40 says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and they are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Everything in the universe is like nothing and emptiness compared to God. Number five. For God to be I am, it means God is the most important and most valuable person in the universe. God is the most important and most valuable person in the universe. He is worthy of our absolute highest praise. He is worthy of our absolute highest interest and our deepest admiration. He is worthy of our absolute sweetest enjoyments. Of everything in our life that we can enjoy, he is most deserving of our enjoyment. So we see God. He is the great I am. He's always been here. We can't really even grasp that with our head. But he's always been happy just being here on his own. He needs nothing. So that begs a very important question. God obviously needs nothing from us. So why create us? If he didn't create us out of need, why did he create us? This for me has probably been the most important truth in my life that I've learned. It's had the greatest impact on my life. It's most shaped how I think about God. And it's most impacted how I read the Bible and how I live. Isaiah 43, verse 6. He answers the question in this verse. 
Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. So why did he create us? For his glory. Not for us. Not just for us. For his glory. The best explanation and definition for God's glory that I've ever heard is this. God's glory is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to enjoy and be amazed. It is the going public of his infinite worth and infinite value. His glory is just the display for the universe to see how infinitely wonderful he is. That's his glory. When you hear about glory in the Bible, it's just a display of the wonder of God. When you learn this, you begin to see it in the Bible everywhere, almost on every page. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Isaiah 6.3, The angels shout, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Just a display of His infinite worth. I love it. Genesis 1.27, God created man in His image. Now what does that mean? If you see a statue of George Washington, do you know what that statue is doing? It is an image bearer. It's for us to understand who George Washington was, what he looked like. It's an image of George Washington. When an artist carefully paints a portrait, it is painted in someone's image. So what do we see in the painting? The person it's supposed to be reflecting. It's, it's meant to be a reflection of who they are. So this brings up an interesting point. I'm about to tell you a verse, and I hope, I hope this has already reframed, reframed one of the most important verses in the Bible. Why do we need to be saved at all? God created the universe. He created people. He created the world. Everything just to display his infinite value and worth. Listen to what Romans 3.23 says. It says, All have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. So what do we do wrong? We do not display the infinite value of God the way that we should. And because of that, we're forever separated. We cannot possibly live up to the glory of God because we're secondary to God. We're created. Our very existence, the fact that we can continue to exist, we're just propped up by God. When God called Israel, he did it for his own glory. He wasn't just trying to be nice. He wasn't just trying to be kind or loving. I mean, it's great, and he was. But it was a means to an end. Listen to what Isaiah 49.3 says. You are my servant, Israel. 
in whom I will be glorified. So why is Israel a servant of God? So that God will be glorified. God rescued Israel from Egypt. Remember, they were slaves. He rescued Israel from Egypt for his glory. Psalm 106 verse 7 says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, but they rebelled by the sea and at the Red Sea. And listen to what it says. Yet he saved them for his name's sake. They were in rebellion. God had just rescued them, and here they were, whining and playing, saying, we were better off as slaves in Egypt. Why did God save them? Why did God rescue them for his name's sake? It says, yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. As the Israelites leave, Pharaoh the leader of Egypt runs after him. He changes his mind. He says, I do not want them to go. So he chases after him. He's going to get them. He's going to bring them back. And God defeats Pharaoh. And I want you to hear why. It says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. That's amazing. After God rescued them, and they went through the Red Sea, they were in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, right? God spared them in the wilderness. And listen why. It says, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. I acted for the sake of my name. It wasn't because of the Israelites. When they move into the promised land that God promised them, this land of milk and honey, right? He gave them the promised land not because they earned it or they deserved it. Listen to why he gave it to them. Who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing it for them, doing for them great and awesome things. By driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. For his name. When they were established as a nation, things were rolling. They were already disobedient again. They were under a siege. It says, for I will defend this city to save it. For my own sake. God's mission is to put on display his infinite worth for us to just gaze at and enjoy. Jesus, in his ministry, he sought after just doing the will of his Father, just for the sake of glory. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Who's heard that verse? A million times if you grew up in church, right? Listen to the rest of the verse. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here we are again. Jesus before his crucifixion, in anguish about what he was going to have to do, 
He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come for this hour. What purpose? Father, to glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God means serious business when it comes to putting on display his infinite worth. God forgives our sins, doesn't he? Why does he do it? Isaiah 43 says, Ah, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And here's a good one. Here's one that I bet a lot of you have skipped right over this one. A lot of you may have this one memorized. Psalm 23. The first three verses of Psalm 23. I hope this blows your mind the same way it did when I read it for the first time. It's like, where has this been every time I've read this? You could probably quote it with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why does he do all that? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It is everywhere, guys. By the way, I'm just pulling out a few examples. They're everywhere. Jesus does not do this for us. God does not do it just for us. It's a means to an end. Jesus' ultimate aim is just to see us enjoy his glory. John 17 says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am. Why? To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus' entire mission is just so he can share in his glory. Now, we've seen that God is the great I am. We've seen what that means. He's always been here, right? He's always been here. No beginning, no end. He just is. We see that he does everything for his glory. He wants to put on display his infinite value and worth. Now, I want to give you seven Seven practical reasons why this matters. Seven practical reasons why this matters. And I hope with this last point, I can fully convince you of how wonderful it is that God does things for his own glory. Seven practical reasons. Jot these down, please. Why is God doing things for his own glory important? Here we go. Number one, it is crucial for your faith. Jesus warned that failure to seek his glory makes faith impossible. John 5.44 says, How can you even believe when you receive glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that comes from God? How can you even believe if you don't seek God's glory? 
If we're going to be honest with each other, is it not true that it's really easy to slip into the mindset of, if I do this for God, maybe he'll owe me and give me what I want. I have a pay raise coming up. I better be good so God doesn't take it away. I think that's an attitude of getting what you want, not getting what glorifies God. What about this? I'm going to put a little bit of extra sauce on this prayer so everyone knows I'm super holy. Are you getting the glory or are you praying for the glory of God? So it's crucial for your faith. Another reason it's important is it shapes the way we pray. It shapes the way we pray. Jesus said that he answers prayers so that God would be glorified. Why does he even answer prayers? To put on display God's infinite worth. John 14, 13 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. I tend to stop there. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. But there's a comma there. Here's the rest of it. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. His glory again. It's everywhere. It can be really difficult to pray with pure motives. It's easy to spend time in prayer and realize that for the last 10 minutes, you've only been asking God for things that you want. It's easy to have a prayer list that's two pages long and it only involves you. Number three. It floods wisdom into every situation of life. God being for his own glory, it floods wisdom into every situation in life. God instructs us to do everything for his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do all for the glory of God. So you know what that does? It destroys this question. And youth pastors are the ones who really get this question a lot. What do you do? Do all for the glory of God. It destroys this question. How far can I go before it's considered a sin? And that question doesn't go away once you leave the youth group. You ask that a lot. I know I do. What's the most I can do before it's a sin? It actually begs the question, is there anything I can do differently to magnify the beauty and the worth of God to others. With this mindset, there is no sneaking around so you don't get caught. There's no conversation that damages someone or the reputation. There's no getting angry for being wronged. And there's no keeping grudges. Because everything you do, you do for the glory of God. I love thinking about Solomon asking for wisdom. He goes to God and he asks, Lord, please give me wisdom. And so what does God do? He doesn't just bless him with wisdom. He blesses him with everything you can possibly imagine. But look, look at what the key to his asking for wisdom is. Solomon goes to God and says, God, I'm the king of your people. 
but I'm like a little child. I have the mind of a little child when it comes to doing the right thing. You are going to have to lead me and help me to be able to lead your people the way you want to. So Solomon, asking for wisdom was for the glory of God. And that's why God just showered him with all kinds of things. Number four. It gives hope in times of suffering. Knowing that God is for his glory, it gives hope in times of suffering. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that suffering pales in comparison. It says it's not even worth comparing at all. Cancer, lost loved ones, physical pain, constant depression, broken marriages, light momentary affliction compared to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Number five. It changes the way we read our Bibles. This one was really important for me personally. It changes the way we read our Bibles. We no longer view his word as a painful, boring experience. Instead, we see it as an opportunity to get a joyful glimpse of the eternal way of glory that awaits us. In this life, we're constantly pulled towards sadness and evil and death. But one day, we're going to be in the presence of a powerful, almighty God, and none of that's going to exist. But we don't have to wait. We get to know him right now. We get to know him right now. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good, and blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Do you know the word blessed means there? Happy. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Happy is the one who takes refuge in him. That's knowing God right now. Number six. We do not make God the Lord of our life. He is the Lord of our life. We do not make God the Lord of our life. He is the Lord of our life. Period. We either worship Him as such or we don't. God has not placed low on our priority list. He is worthy to be praised with all of our might. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. God is not part of our lives. He is our lives. He's not something that we do on the side when work and family and play are completed. He is the good, sovereign God who is supreme over everything that you come in contact with on this earth. Number seven. I'll close with this. It changes the way that you make disciples. Knowing that God is for his glory, it changes the way you make disciples. 
You just can't wait to get out there and tell someone about this holy and wonderful God. What you're doing is you're giving them a new favorite joy in their life, knowing Christ. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to be nervous, wondering, are they going to reject him? Or, man, I just don't want to be. Do you know what you're giving them? Access to a holy and righteous God. Psalm 1611, my favorite verse. I can always find a way to squeeze it into a sermon. Psalm 1611, it says, You have shown me the way to life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you believe that? Yes. My prayer for this church moving forward is that everything that you do isn't for you to receive or to get or to do, but just simply to understand who God is and just put his infinite worth on display for the world. As my family moves to Houston, we're going with one goal, and that's to tell as many people as we can about God's glory. Now, we have an advantage. We don't know anyone in Houston So we don't have to worry about being embarrassed. (laughs) But my prayer is that his name will be magnified and glorified forever because he's worth it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.